The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Anybody here for the first time tonight? A couple people. Welcome. There's a bathroom downstairs to the right if you need one. So I've been giving a series of talks on how to integrate the practice of mindfulness or awareness into our daily lives. So it's not just a sitting practice, but it's a, a practice we do during the entire waking day. And I, I over the last uh, six weeks or so, I've given a few suggestions. A while back, there was a suggestion of just slowing down, softening the heart a bit. And I know it sounds a little trite or easy, or, but it really changes our lives. So if you haven't explored that as a technique, you might just pick a place that you have in your life, like seeing this person or going to work or going to Rainbow to shop or the co-op to shop, and then just establish that intention. I'm just going to slow down a little bit, and I'm going to consciously, intentionally soften my heart while I do whatever I've chosen to do. And just notice how it it changes the experience. It's a lot more easy to be fully there when you're there. And uh, to notice all of the stuff going on in your heart when you're there, all the different reactions, all the qualities of craving, fear, joy, doubt, boredom, Whatever that it is that you'd be experiencing that, it's just all of a sudden it's in living color. And then we just learn how to be more skillful in that situation. Just a simple technique, so explore it if you'd like. And then I, I also suggested another way to, to change our life from being a, a life of habit energy where we're just kind of going through the motions, as I think most of us do a lot of the time. We're not really there when we're there. It's like... Uh, the obvious example is when we drive home sometimes, you know, we can drive home, but we're not really there. We don't even remember driving home. We, I mean, we know we got home because we're there, but we don't remember the whole walking to the car, getting in the car, driving. And it's like, how can I not remember that? And Well, we don't remember it because we weren't really there. We were lost in our thoughts. So another technique is just to remember this intention of being free, or to remember that it's my intention to have a heart that's unburdened, and to kind of be working that out in every moment, or at least in some moments of your life. Like ex This is more of an exploration, maybe working out isn't the best phrase, but this exploration about, well, what would an unburdened heart how would that be now? How would that look now? What would freedom look like in this situation? So if you're going to go home tonight and you've got somebody there, wherever you live, somebody you live with, then th then the question could be, well, how would it look like to be with this person in an unburdened way, not afflicted in any way? Or even being at common ground, of course, you could practice right now. Like, how is it to be here in an unafflicted way? So if you're kind of being afflicted by wanting to be home or wanting this to be over so you can go get something to eat or go to sleep, then you can just see, well, is there a way to peacefully coexist with the mood that's there right now or the thoughts or the sensations that you have right now? What would it look like to be fully, completely peacefully coexisting with conditions, as opposed to the conditions being a burden or some reaction to the conditions that are happening right now. So this is just a technique. It's actually a reflection that you can play with during the day. So you might even you have to kind of jog your memory because you won't remember to do this reflection. So you have to like put the word freedom somewhere or ease or something like that in your pocket or on your computer screen or somewhere so you'll remember to just try it out. Well, yeah, 
why would that be dangerous to practice being unburdened in a particular situation? Because one of our big habits is we we justify being tight. We feel like this situation requires, it's asking for us to get a little tight because I really want to get what he's saying, you know, or I really want to impress this person that's sitting by me, or I'm really, whatever, you know, trying to, just this unconscious thing of wanting to be a good Girl Scout or Boy Scout, you know, so whatever we do, we want to be really good at it. And all these different habits or patterns that justify or help us justify tension, tightness, fear, greed, irritation. So we just change that by taking up this reflection, the reflection on freedom or ease. And again, mostly it's just about remembering that. And then the last thing, the last strategy for practicing sort of bringing our spiritual life into our daily life is the training in what, what in Buddhism is called sila. In Theravada Buddhism, in the Pali language, it's sila, but it's just ethical conduct, learning to live harmoniously with the people in our lives, the community we live in. And so um, there's sort of three ways to train in living harmoniously. One is to creatively use restraint. The other is to develop, cultivate some ideal, some aspiration. And a third and more subtle way is to, to explore how this heart-mind could effortlessly be a harmonious person, a good person, a generous person, a kind person, instead of it being a should, like I'm trying to refrain from uh, saying things that are hurtful, or I'm cultivating kindness. So instead of those first two approaches, it's just like, well, in those moments of my life where I'm effortlessly, naturally being a good person, being living in a harmonious way, like, what are the ingredients of those moments where it's all natural and effortless to be kind, to say the right thing and not the wrong thing, to be patient instead of impatient? So we're, we're trying to, we're reflecting on how to effortlessly be skillful. So you can understand why that would be a trickier practice. So last week I started talking about sexual misconduct. And it's one of the five precepts, lay training precepts that the Buddha suggested. And I'll just review those for us. In each of these training precepts, we can work with, work, work with it in those three ways. To creatively use it as a restraint, to cultivate some ideal, develop some ideal or aspiration around that precept, or to discover how to effortlessly live out this um, kind of skillfulness. So the first one is, I undertake the training not to harm living beings. And I have a, a description of these five from Thich Nhat Hanh, a well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk. You can pick up, uh, some, many of you got it last week, but if you didn't get it last week, you can pick one up at the end of the class tonight. So again, the first one is, I undertake the training not to harm or kill living beings. The second one is, I undertake the training not to take things that aren't freely given. Third one is, I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. That's what I started talking about last week. And maybe we'll get to the fourth tonight. Um, I undertake the training to refrain from false speech, like lying, and harmful speech. And then the fifth one is I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. So I want to go back to our sexual misconduct, but just as a way of, like, how do we hold these precepts, these training precepts the Buddha gave, as a way to help us reflect on how to live harmoniously in the world, how to be more skillful in life. And... One of the principles, and I think in spiritual life, even beyond the Buddhist tradition, but just generally, is, um, I mean, it's just that it's more definitional, that a worldly life is a life that's led primarily 
in pursuit of sense experiences. And sense experiences, in this way of talking, includes thoughts. So a thought is a sense experience, an emotion is a sense experience, as well as you know having a nice meal is a sense experience, having sex is a sense experience. So a worldly life, so there's nothing wrong with a worldly life. A worldly life, just in, for our discussion together, is a life that's primarily led in pursuit of sense experiences. So we're trying to get, you know, not have certain sense experiences and have other sense experiences. And that's probably, that worldly orientation probably fits most of our lives, I'm guessing, are kind of in that direction. Like we're pretty much after sense experiences, including those of us who come to a meditation center and develop meditation practice. A lot of, if, you, if we're really honest with ourselves, a lot of our meditation practices, we're looking for a nice sense experience, like calming down is a sense experience. Having bliss is a sense experience. Not being afflicted by, you know, self-hatred and judgment is a, you know, being free of that is a sense experience. So this worldly life, there's a full range of this from like really gross sense experiences, like, you know, the raw feeling of power that we might get beating up our little brother or something like that to very refined sense experiences, like uh, thinking about love, universal love. That's a sense experience, but that's a pretty refined sense experience. And in one definition of spiritual life, then, is not to say good or bad about worldly, but just to understand that there's another possible orientation, which is sort of interesting. Like, well, what would that be? What is another orientation other than orienting towards one or another sense experience. I have to check my notes to find out what it is. <laughs> and we don't really know, do we? Does anybody know what that, like, what would the spiritual orientation be? A lot of what we know, though, what we can know, all of us, I think, is we can begin to get a sense of the limitations of sense experience, even the really nice sense experiences, like the sense experience of reflecting on really wholesome love or connection with another person, or like even the nice feeling of being part of a community. And so we can, we can really see that. But, and, and that feeling can kind of be very strong and beautiful in moments, but we'll notice, if we pay attention, we'll notice like a kind of clinging, like, for example, if you really like being here on Wednesday nights, and then at the end, you notice a certain sadness about leaving, or a craving, you know, wanting it to last longer, or afraid of not being at Kamkan, it's like, oh, this is such a nice, wholesome place to be, and now i got to go home to my confusing relationship with my partner, or I have to go back to work tomorrow, you know, in this unhealthy work environment. <coughs> and so even <clears throat> what we can see is that even when things are going well, there's a certain limiting quality to, to all sense experiences, even really good, like, a, you know, in terms of, this third precept of undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Well, even when sexual, it isn't sexual misconduct, but it's sort of the ideal, like you're with somebody who you deeply love, you're committed to, he or she is committed to you, you know, and it's, it's like two human beings physically being intimate. I mean, it's like for a lot of us, the way we're conditioned in this culture, it's like the ideal. It's like the ideal sense experience, but I'm assuming that many of us at least have had those kinds of experiences and they're limited. It's like, because they end. They only last so long and then even if it was really tremendous, the experience of wanting it back isn't a tremendous experience. It's an afflictive experience or judging the next, you know, sexual intimate contact you know, is a cause for disappointment because it's not like it was. 
or just the worry of whether it will be nice or not. Or all the other things, of course, that come up in that arena of our lives. So this is a real wisdom. See, even though we don't know what is other than sense experience, all of a sudden there's this growing sense of the limitations of sense experience. And it really helps us with the precepts because when we're just in uh, this direction of it's all about sense experience, my life is about getting good at sense experiences, then we can bump up against each other quite a bit. Or basically we're bumping up against conditions because once we have the sense that we put all our eggs in this basket of sense experience, then anytime life is in the way of us getting what we want, we can get aggressive. Or, you know, either we blame ourselves or we blame the world, and that's agitating. And then if we do something about that, it could create problems. Like if life doesn't deliver me an, enough money, I might take things that aren't mine. And then, you know, then all of a sudden people are going to be really suspicious around me, and I might end up in jail, and on and on. So there's, if we don't understand the problems that come when human beings pursue such experiences, we just have to look at the world. Because this world as it is, is what happens when you have whatever it is now, six billion human beings, as well as a lot of other animals, pursuing sense experience. It's this kind of world. This is what we get. And this is why there's competition. This is why there's oppression. This is why there's, this is why there's hatred. This is why times of desire. Because we think we're orienting towards <coughs> life is about sense experience. That's all there is. So I'm going to get my sense experience that I think I need to be happy. I don't know if you know Kabir, who's an Indian poet from long ago, several hundred years ago. He has a poem. I don't know the title of this. Uh, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day the cloth was well, well woven. So I brought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. And this is really the, the place of the, the precepts or any kind of skillful training is to kind of show up that one thing. Like, what is that one thing? The one thing that's behind this pursuit of sense experience. And see, we often make a mistake, and it's easy to interpret the precepts, any kind of moral training in this light, which is, oh, sex is bad, you know, wealth is bad, um, whatever. Uh, killing animals to eat meat is bad. It's really easy to, to just want to turn things into black and white. And so then you get the whole range of ascetic practices. You know, somehow if I could just not be a human being, not be a sexual being, not being a hungry being, not being a being that likes sweet, cold, creamy, milky things <laughs> with chunks of chocolate, <laughs> you know, then, or entertainment, or music, or whatever, you know, then, then I'd be happy because in a way we're partly right we see how afflictive, afflicting it is to want things constantly. And even when we get what we want, then we want more of it, or we want something even more refined or more uh, potent than the one we just had. Even with sexual, in our sexual relationships, even if we have a really good partner, in so many ways, it's just the nature of our mind often is to want something different. So it's like we get that, 
And then we might think, oh, then I have to go the opposite direction, like not have that. All of this stuff is bad. And then we sort of flip to the other extreme, which, of course, is just not having worldly experiences is a worldly experience. <laughs> you know, sort of fasting is a worldly experience. Being a celibate is a worldly experience. You, you, we don't get out of this by rejecting the world. So we have to understand that that's not what this, these trainings are about, like somehow learning how to be a good rejecter of the world. It's really about deepening understanding like like in terms of the third precept undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct so in different ways that we might restrain ourselves from certain activities it's about developing understanding so if we say you know I'm not going to sleep with somebody I'm not going to have sex with somebody unless unless there's some real a real relationship there a real connection and the commitment that we're a couple. I'm not saying that what you, that's what you should do. I'm just saying, let's say you decide that. For whatever reason, you decide that. And then uh, the great thing about that is then when you see an attractive person and he or she it, it seems uh, interested in having sex and you're interested in having sex, then because of this commitment you've made, you get to see the force of lust. It's like there it is. Because you can't act it out. I mean, you can, but at least there would be some resistance because you've made this commitment to yourself. And so then, you know, it's like you kind of make a move to say, you know, let's go back to my place or something. And then you, sexual or otherwise, integrating anything that you have denied into your life is, of course, quite difficult. So if you have strong conscious sexual feelings, then you are lucky. If you have an active and engaging problem with your sexuality and face up to its challenges, you are certainly on the royal road to settling the great matter and realizing ultimate freedom. So, again, we don't have to assume that Reb's right, but it's a nice perspective to, to take in. And, uh, you know, just to relate to that, there's an interesting article in the New York Times a couple days ago, Tuesday science section, I think, that I downloaded, read today. In most species, faithfulness is a fantasy. Anybody read it? Yeah, Fernando did. It's, a, it's an interesting article. I'll just give you one little piece, which is they, uh, they looked at um, the offspring of bonded pairs, so all different kinds of species that bond, male and female bond, and they did a genetic test of the offspring to see how many of the offspring belong to the, to the male in the partnership. And anywhere between 10 and 70% of the offspring did not belong to the uh, resident male. So this is this force that we all live with, you know, this force of procreation and in this very interesting predicament of being a human being, we have the capacity, it's the easy capacity, the sort of default capacity to be an animal. I mean, that's just part of what's going on here is this animal conditioning, the, the genetics of an animal. We are an animal. I always loved that when I taught elementary school. One of the best kicks I got as a teacher, I mean, there, there's a number of things that are fun when you kind of blow kids' minds. But one of the things that would regularly blow kids' minds is to tell them that we're animals. Because, you know, kids like animals generally, little kids. And, uh, and but they, they, you know, they get programmed by the culture that, you know, animals are animals and then we're something else. And then, you know, about third grade, they can really start getting this. I mean, they don't get it until somebody really kind of forces this on them that we're animals and just just like these other animals and we're much more alike we're, we're much more like them than we're different than them and to kind of uh, really see that and start making connections by you know people being greedy over toys and what what you see little puppies do with their toys and and all those kinds of things that uh, we can be aware of so then 
you know, it would be nice to hear from people how you work with this part of our nature around the creative use of restraint. All of us do. If we didn't, in different ways, work with restraint, I mean, at least in this area of sexuality, you know, we'd have all kinds of diseases probably, at least when we were younger. And so how do, how do we work creatively with restraint around this area of sexuality? How do we work with an ideal? Like commitment is an interesting ideal to work with. You know, bringing sexuality, uh, sexual expression, and personal commitment to another human being together. No, you don't have to. There's, I don't think that's written in stone. That, that's just an ideal that you can cultivate because that's what you want to cultivate. And so it might be interesting to hear about that. I think I mentioned Stephen Levine last week. I'm not sure in the Wednesday group, maybe in the Sunday group. He's written a, an interesting book with his wife, which I think is called Embracing the Beloved. Does anybody know that book by Stephen Levine and Andrea Levine? Anyway, they also had an article a long time ago in, I think, Yoga Journal, and I wrote down this quote from that. And I think the article was about this book when it came out. So it was in the mid-90s when it came out. In this disposable, quick-fix society, most relationships come under the heading of an acquired and somewhat dispensable. Uh, heading of acquired and somewhat dispensable. More an option than a given. But when we commit to a conscious relationship, we take our partner as a given rather than an acquired part of our existence. When we still think of our relationships as acquired, they are still disposable and trite. One foot is always kept outside the circle. Our bags are never wholly unpacked. Bonding transmutes the acquired into the given. And the level of responsibility, the capacity to respond mindfully instead of reacting mechanically, opens the space wider for yet deeper investigation. So again, this would, it's not necessarily right in an absolute sense. In, in Buddhism, according to the Buddha, the only kind of moral thing that's right is around harming and not harming. That's like a absolute in the sense that if somebody intentionally harms, it does something to the mind stream, right? Because even if nobody knows you've intentionally harmed somebody, you know, your mind knows that you've done that. And that makes an imprint in the mind, and it has an effect. So in this sense, and even in a Buddhist sense, there is sort of an absolute to morality. But it's around the intention. It's not about kind of the different activities. So, like I said before, you don't need to equate commitment with sexuality. But if your sexuality involves intentions to harm, to take what's not given, you know, to kind of um, manipulate, which is a form of harming, or to abuse, hurting others, then that will have an imprint on our minds. That will have an effect, regardless of whether it hurts the other person or not. It affects us. So when we create a positive ideal, it's like we're using that positive ideal to avoid harming. It's like, because moving in the direction of harming is destructive to ourselves and to the community at large. Moving in the other direction of non-harming, which is not, I mean, it sounds like putting it in the negative doesn't sound like anything much, but non-harming includes all the positive qualities you want to attach to that. And so just put those qualities there and then cultivate that, whatever that might look like for you. One of the things Stephen Levine, I may have mentioned this last week, talks about is it's like uh, we consciously make a commitment not to have sexual fantasies about anybody except our intimate partner. And so that's just a training. So when you find yourself seeing an attractive photo or knowing an attractive person that it sort of you really like, you just try to then sort of transform that fantasy so that you're seeing the beautiful qualities in your partner, however, you know, 
whatever the equivalent would be, however you can do that, and just keep it focused there. And it's just this commitment that I'm equating commitment with sexuality. So that would be something that would be nice to hear from people, if you're comfortable, just talking about how you've worked with an ideal in a way that actually supported your heart, like didn't lead to affliction or guilt or judgment or whatever, um, but just helped you be a happier human being. That would be good. And then the last is this effortless quality, right? So in each of these precepts, we can creatively work with restraint, we can work with an ideal, to cultivate an ideal, and we can discover like what is what does a sexual being look like when he or she is effortlessly not harming as a sexual being? What does that look like? And maybe you've discovered that in moments of your life or days or weeks. And so that would be nice to hear about too. And uh, one thing I mentioned I think briefly last week is just in this light is uh, just to have a sense of the uh, energy of sexuality and to equate it, to begin to connect the, the sexual energy with a more generic energy of being alive. And to not, to be able to do that transmutation very quickly. So when we feel aroused, when we feel attracted in a, in a kind of more uh, animal level way, primitive way, or whatever you want to call it, that it's not to deny that, but just to kind of unpack it. So it, it's not just about the sexual act, but it's about intimacy. It's about like being alive and being here, alive, intimate with a person, with the act of sexual intercourse, if that's what's happening, or with just the, the space of the moment. And to, it's like the whole body or whole being becomes a sex organ as opposed to, you know, whatever... We, you know, when it's just specific to a particular act, then it's really a limited thing. I mean, it still can be a quite intense and, and pleasant experience, no doubt, but it's rather limited. And so this is something that we can share. And I know this is not an easy topic for people to talk about, but it's a really refreshing thing to talk about, especially the whole thing that makes us an area of such delusion is that we take it so personally. We take being a sexual being so personally when it is like the thing we share. <laughs> Probably, in a way, it's one of the great common denominators in this room right now is all, that we're all sexual beings, no matter our age. I mean, our bodies get old, but the sexual desire doesn't necessarily get old. You know, Hopefully, there's more wisdom, but the actual energy of sexuality, I haven't noticed changing. Um, so I'll leave it there so we have 15 or 20 minutes to hear from each other if you have any comments or questions or just responses to like how you might how you have or might work with this force in your life great well I'll just talk about more recently um, and I think it has to do with my formation around the ideal of non-exploitation to be seeking uh, sexual excitement or to be pursuing some type of fantasy uh, involving another person, uh, I recognize or I see it as a form of exploitation. And, well, what's wrong with exploitation? Um, well, what preceded that was seeing all the violence that happens in the world and what is violence all about and to me it's a lot about people exploiting each other um, and so I, I realized that to, to try to act out fantasies or to seek a thrill uh, was a form of exploitation and do I want to engage in something that either consciously or unconsciously I end up exploiting another person and for the sake of wanting to see a more peaceful world, I choose not to exploit. And it doesn't deny my desire for gratification. I still have that. And I don't judge myself for wanting 
to have those feelings. I still have those feelings, but I feel like I can make a choice around do I want to gratify that or do I want to do something for the sake of a more peaceful world. And I find a lot of strength, at least at this point. It could change. <laughs> but for now, I find that um, passing up an opportunity to exploit another person uh, is something I believe will make for a more peaceful world, and that's something I really badly want. Yeah. Thanks, Craig, for sharing that. Other thoughts or comments, questions? David. For me, when I hear that precept, I think of sexual interactions I've had where the other person just took for themselves the pleasure that they could get and then left me on my own. And I, I felt like that was exploitive in a sense. So for me, it's more about the intention, really giving and receiving, where you're paying as much attention to the other person's pleasure as your own. That kind of intention of how that goes back and forth. And if I could just sort of change, uh, uh, restate what you said, because I think it's such an important point, and I, did, I don't remember bringing it up. Like, one of the ideals that, like, if you wanted to work on the level of ideal, then you could turn what David said into an ideal. You could just call it generosity, or what did you say, David, uh, freely giving and receiving? Yeah, which is something we talk about here at Common Ground. So then that would be the ideal that any sexual uh, interaction with another being would involve this, you, there would be this sort of palatable feeling of giving and receiving. That that's what it would actually be about, the sort of giving and receiving. And, uh, and of course, that's related to intimacy. You know, you have to be intimate to know how to connect with the person. Todd? In uh, my meditation practice, and I think this is pretty common, there's really strong feelings of love, and this is much more powerful on retreat. Um, or I, I lived at Greenville Farm in 1999, and I began to you know, have this really strong bond with those people. But it was scary, and it was scary for a lot of us, and you, I don't know how to work with that. So, and I think this is pretty common in the West, what we would do is, you know, you, you feel this love, and, and you would just kind of put it on another person, and then it became a sexual thing. And I think it was because of fear in a way. And I saw it over and over again. Um, you know, this is really common in the students for this to happen. So it is kind of, um, I guess, a pitfall of, or something to be aware of in practice. You have a possible, we have a, a possible romance where you're in love with someone you don't even know across the room and it energizes you and, and whatever. But it's really interesting to watch that, how just, just feelings of love and connection can be scary. And so we yeah. achieve it, but we compromise it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you you bring up a really good point. Like one of the one of the reasons to creatively work with restraint, like to be celibate for periods of time. Like I don't know if you were at Green Gulch, uh, if they required people to be. You're, yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> Just like when we're on retreat, we're supposed to be celibate too, including no masturbation. And one of the nice things about that is that it opens up this other possibility that Todd's pointing to, which is when we when we we are feeling intimate, that sort of more profound kind of intimacy with another person, it's really scary. And I'll, some of the time, we go to a sexual interaction because we can't handle the intimacy. It's just like exactly as you said. Yeah. And uh, so if we have this sort of commitment to non, you know, we're in a, an environment where we've made a commitment not to have sex, then we're sort of there with all that intimacy and we'll learn some things. And it is, it's very, I found it very scary to be intimate with another person without having a way to act it out. Basically to lose ourselves, we can lose ourselves in the activity of making love and uh, not actually have to show up and be there because we just kind of go on automatic pilot. We can go on automatic pilot. What else? Mm -hmm. We're mesh and then 
government's actions brought up many issues regarding sexuality. Um, it's just um, you know, on one hand, just watching him on TV, he's wrong, just thinking about that beautiful boy standing next to him and this guy talking about what he did or did not do. But then the next players came on as to what is it that stops the rest of us from acting being jackets like him. <laughs> and, and how much of the restraint is truly internal, and how much is that in fact external, societal, and not, not getting caught, or um, yeah. getting caught if you uh, online and you know you go to a porn site, and you know, on one hand you're doing it, but then on the other hand is somebody watching me, you know, go on the site, etc. So then, as you keep on analyzing it, then there's no end to it. Try and figure out is the restraint internal? Am I being a good soul? And being yeah, and this is exactly why we can't be content with sense experience, even really good sense experience, because even if we're just having really healthy sexual interactions, wholesome sexual interactions, and wholesome all the way through, what you're saying, Ramesh, is that it's dependent on the particular situation of our life. And if we were put transported into another environment, it would be very different. And I think I have that same reflection that I, I, I appreciate the fact that although I've been able to sort of not violate my commitment to my wife, that I can imagine there being situations, you know, the perfect wave sort of situation, where that wouldn't be true. And so it's, what that does is it takes away some arrogance that somehow I'm above it. And so what that does, it motivates us to practice not just being a good person, which is a really noble practice. It's really good to kind of learn to live harmoniously. But that that's in the service of deeper insight that just gives us the kind of wisdom that can be transported to other less favorable situations. I forgot your name. Not Shannon. Shannon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's like, um, it's a real interesting topic to um, also just watching your friends and some of the choices that, that they make and then, you know, and um, for me, I just think it's such a potent sight, like the, the sexual life and um, especially, I mean, you know, being a woman, like you just see, I've seen so many of my girlfriends just make some bad choices that, like, had all these other ramifications. And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen with men, but it just, I don't know, it just puts a whole other level on it that I've seen anyway, as far as gender. And I, I feel like a lot of it has to do with attachment and the honesty piece that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I just feel like a lot of people aren't honest about how attached they get when they get physical with yeah, people. Yeah. And I think that that has always scared me. So I've been sort of, and not, I don't think it's fear in a bad way. I think it's like, I've kind of always been like, uh, respect the power that that has, you know? Sort of like, okay, mm -hmm. I don't want to make a decision then that's going to affect all these other parts of my life, you know? So, um, you know, I am a sexual being, you know, I have sexual thoughts, all these things, but I'm very, very intentional about, you know, I mean, I was saying to one of my friends the other day after the Dharma talk, like, I feel like actually this area of sila, you know, of creative restraint, like I'm very good at, and maybe like chocolate, I'm not so good at, or whatever. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, so it's, but it's interesting, you know, being a single person, and um, you just, I don't know, I just,
Oh, a lot of good things there, I thought. I mean, the one thing you said, I just want to highlight it because it's important, is that uh, part of our sexuality is like not wanting to be intimate because it's too scary. Part of it is that we just want that kind of the warmth of physical affection. It isn't even about the sex so much. It's just about some friendship, sort of the friendly touch. And this is how you have to get it. You know, you have to have the whole kind of sexual experience in order to just have some physical affection. If we were baboons, we'd pick lice out of each other's hair. We'd get it that way. But somehow we lost that that sort of social trait. But uh, and, and then you said something else that I thought was really important about um, oh just just about intimacy and just respecting the intimacy and uh, like just being honest about it and it and I think it is useful to see the wreckage because there's so much counter programming about seeing the beauty of the ideal uh, relationship and sexual relationship especially and so. It need, we need to sort of highlight all the wreckage around us just to keep a balanced view of, of how it is. And uh, I think it's true. There are some people, and maybe it's true, more true with women than men, but in, in general, there are people that that intimate experience is um, disturbing because we're not used to being that exposed. And it's, it, there's something very similar, like if you, you, it's not appropriate to talk to people about your deeper meditation experiences unless there's a certain level of safety or commitment there because it can be quite disturbing to go talk about anything that's very intimate. The same thing about taking off your clothes and, and being physically intimate with another human being. If, you, if we're conditioned a certain way, that's a distur- in a non-safe environment, that's a disturbing experience. It can be quite agitating to be that exposed, just like it would be kind of exposing to share something very intimate about your spiritual life with somebody who doesn't care or doesn't understand and could say something that could be then very make you feel really uh, doubtful about what you experienced or like, well, am I doing the right thing or I must be a fool or and, you know, really kind of throw our whole spiritual life into a tizzy because we sort of opened it up and some people don't understand that some things actually it's appropriate to protect because uh, it requires special handling you know and so we want to make sure that those who are around us when we are that exposed are worthy of that that kind of they'll be sensitive enough that's not true for everybody you know they're they're vulnerability or their whatever is not uh, so much there with their sexual experience, you know, and uh, so it's just different. We have time maybe for one more comment, if anybody else has a thought they'd like to share with the group. Maria. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe bring us back to the realm of the spiritual, not that sexuality can be spiritual and all yeah. that stuff, but, um, but it seems to me that you sort of like, at least for me, at least in my hearing experience, you sort of veered away from that question of the spiritual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I talked very eloquently about the third mindfulness training. Yeah. Um, so... Sure, in, in one in one minute. Not wrap it up like that, but you know, can you can you bring us back around? Yeah. 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 Well, I can say a few things real quick. Uh, one is that the spiritual, for for most of us, most of the time, the level we're at in terms of our spiritual life is in understanding the limitations of sense experience. And don't underestimate how profound of a transition that is from blindly rushing into sense experience to be having the wherewithal to question, is this all? Is this what it's about? As, as Greg was talking about, like getting that, that uh, gratification isn't the end of the world. We've had our sense 
desires gratified in the past, and we're still basically in the same boat. So just sort of beginning to understand the limitations is a profound shift in consciousness. Because now, instead of just trying to get the sense experiences as we want, we're actually reflecting on the sense experiences that we're having, which is like being mindful. If we do that enough, if we reflect enough on the sense experiences that we're having, and really with a, with a profound kind of honesty, which we call like clear seeing. This is what Vipassana means. It means to see things as they are, to have insight into the sense experiences as they actually are. We have uh, what's called in Buddhism, you know, an insight into the unconditioned. So there's the conditioned, which we know well, but actually we don't know it too well. We're, we're sort of so involved in it that we're not looking at the conditioned experiences that we're having moment by moment. But we, we see those, and it's like, it's like we start to see that all of these conditioned experiences are happening in this vast space of the unconditioned. The mind, the heart that knows is not one of the conditions that are being known. And see, you can't really talk about what the unconditioned is, but we can intuitively have insight into this, and it, and it profoundly changes our, it, it really supports a radical change of relationship to the conditioned conditions of our lives. We're still a human being, we still have thoughts, emotions, situations, circumstances of life, but now it's not the whole picture. Conditions aren't the whole picture. There's this context for them, which is the unconditioned or the space of now or the space of awareness, that that's the spiritual element, is understanding that there's something outside of the realm of conditions. It's outside, but it's not it's not in a different place. So I, I want to be careful about, you know, because otherwise you can think we have to transcend the world. It's not about transcending the world. It's about not being confused by the world of conditions. But we have to end it here. Let's take it just a couple seconds and let go of the words. Take a couple breaths together. And appreciating being here together in this community. Appreciating the people who had comments and thoughts to share with the group tonight. These ancient teachings that are still so useful and practical. And then feeling inspired to do the best we can to cultivate awareness, wisdom, and compassion as a deep way of taking care of ourselves and also as a deep way of taking care of all beings. Feeling responsible for taking care of all beings. May we all be free from suffering, free from the roots of suffering. May all beings be at ease. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.